Fireside Chats, a podcast where, every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down to discuss the work of Hillel Tickton, centering our discussion around his piece, Towards the Political Economy of the USSR. This is part one of a two-part conversation. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Donald. Hey, it's Donald, also from the Communist League of Tampa. Lexi. This is Lexi, the brutal fact of enormous waste. And Rosa. Uh, the calculating problem of existence, <laughs> I guess? <laughs> Fuck it. Whatever. All right. Uh, so, I basically, we're just going to talk about Tickton. Uh, the sort of post-Trotskyist theorist of the political yeah. economy of the Soviet Union. We read a couple of pieces. Uh, we just got done debating about which pieces we were supposed to read. Um, <laughs> some of us read Towards the Political Economy of the USSR. Some of us read, what was the other one? Uh, the Class Structure of the USSR and the Elite, which is an elaboration of uh, the argument put out in Towards the Political Economy. So Tickton, as I understand it, having uh, browsed his very, very brief Wikipedia page uh, before we started this, uh, was basically from South Africa. He left the country after getting into kind of a heady situation with activism. I'm assuming he was anti-apartheid. Yes. He went to live in the Soviet Union and studied there um, and attempted to Putting like a like a doctrinal thesis, uh, basically explaining like why the Soviet economy was fucked up and they didn't accept it. Um, he ended up in Glasgow teaching there. He was made a professor of Marxist studies at the University of Glasgow in uh, 2000. He retired in 2002. In 1973, he started a journal which is still publishing regularly today called Critique. He is pound for pound, in my opinion, like the best living theorist we have of the USSR. How do y'all feel about this dude? I remember the first time I read Tickton, he actually kind of blew my mind because I had always thought that state capitalism was the theory, you know? But then you read Tickton and you realize he actually is looking at what is happening in the USSR and then from there trying to derive the general social dynamics and class structure and whatnot, instead of saying, okay, how can we kind of force USSR to fit into the categories of capitalism? I think Tickton was the first, um, really made, made it possible for anything about the USSR as its own thing and, and not in a way where I was trying to cram everything into capitalism, you know? Yeah, so much of like the discussion of the Soviet Union historically has been debates between different sects and different theorists, um, with the USSR kind of being like this weird proxy for their own like internal political debates in whatever time and place they were taking place, you know. And Tikhtin 
uh, instead of evolving his conception of the Soviet Union in that context, actually went and lived there and studied it firsthand, which I think clearly was very illuminating and I think allowed him to try to conceptualize it in a way that was fresh and not just trying to hammer this thing into previously conceived categories. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of get that a lot from the theorists of state capitalists that they didn't really actually have much information on the USSR. And that makes a lot of sense since most of it was like written during the cold war from pretty much foreign perspectives for the most part. Like I know Paul Maddock didn't live in the USSR. Neither did Tony cliff or, or any of the major theorists. Of C.L.R. James state. and Raya Dunyevskaya would be other state capitalist theorists. Yeah, like and Charles of... Bettelheim is the he he is um the main Maoist state capitalist theorist, and he actually worked as an economic planner during the Stalin years, and he thinks that it was state capitalism. So mm. I guess he counts. There's a good Bettelheim standpoint line there. there. Yeah, you know, like Bettelheim yeah. and Tickton both, you know, they were both the main scholars of the USSR that had lived in the USSR, but were also politically charged, but they had very different um, theories and approaches. Yeah, what I really appreciate about Tickton is that he, on the one hand, takes empirical data incredibly seriously, and then on the other hand, wants to also just defend the basic methodological premise that you can't simply abstract from empirical experience. And he goes on a bit of a rant about Althusserian, like methodologizing or something, like trying to impose yeah. some kind of systematic, like well, it's, it's rational. He's a, he's a sensitive theorist. He actually really does care about, quote, rising from the concrete to the abstract, quote, which is just a Marxist way of talking about paying attention to empirical data. And he's, like, not afraid to actually do that. And the thing about Tickton is that he is really, like, a heterodox Trotskyist or post-Trotskyist. He really is using, like, a mode of production analysis, and he's using, like, all the language of traditional Marxism. But he, that doesn't stop him from being a sophisticated theorist. Yeah, and, he's, a, he's a very orthodox Trotskyist. And that's what makes, like, people like Tickton are why I don't have a final vocabulary about anything. I hate to sound postmodern, but at the same time like even if this guy is working in a kind of crank mode he has such valuable analysis and he is i don't know he's saying important stuff him being a marxist or a trotskyist doesn't like stop him the fact that he's hooked on modes of production doesn't stop him well i was gonna say is that um is that Tickens, um, methodology is that he doesn't go from a abstract to concrete to abstract rather from the concrete he analyzes it then forms abstractions, and then from there applies it to the concrete, and you know continuously. So it's it's not so much like an a priori method where he has a priori abstractions that he forces the concrete to fall into, but he he starts from the concrete and then from there forms abstractions. And so I think he's actually it's it's this kind of um critique of a priori methodology almost. Yeah, on some level, the facts can speak for themselves, and you have to, like, be sensitive to that. Well, he says there's a balance between empiricism, which is the ideology that the facts speak for themselves, and, you know, 
theory, well, on, on, so, and on some methodology level, and theory, and how the facts, you know, need to be interpreted through a theory. And so he's of course saying, you know, the American Sovietologist, their their problem is that they're too empirical and they don't have a methodology to kind of look at all these different social relations and how they create a dynamic society or you know a social dynamic they, they literally can't look at it dialectically but rather they just kind of see it as a static society rather than a society that's in motion constantly all it means to go from concrete to abstract it is to pay attention to what the the facts seem to say you have to be sensitive to those appearances no matter what one thing that's really interesting is that like the the real axis that he places his analysis of the USSR is a, is upon waste, and in the piece that I read, which I hadn't read in a while, but I revisited, and he basically just spends a lot of time going into the like drastic inefficiencies of the way that the Soviet system functioned, um, particularly in the sort of like in the period that he was basically studying it, which was you know, the post-Stalinist, like, heavy industrial development kind of analyzes the problems of the Soviet Union's inability to develop a really effective consumer market or to develop a, a effective production for consumption um, and how so much of it went into either uh, military development uh, or, you know, he, he, said, he points out that a lot of people talk about the military development as the, the focus of production, but a lot of it is actually in just maintaining production, and a lot of effort goes into just keeping the shit that they built working. And he talks about how in some instances there were things that would be built that would have to be repaired so much it would take like two times as much resources uh, maintaining it as it took to you know build it in the first place. Um, which he basically traces sort of technological stagnation that results from the system of like skewed incentives that are kind of enmeshed into the structure of production in the USSR. He kind of traces the inefficiencies of the system to um, the labor issue, basically. He, he looks well, at like how the laborers relate to the means of production, and then from there, he tries to understand how the greater dynamics of the system are developed. And when he comes to realize is that the laborers are too atomized and repressed in order to exercise any kind of collective control over production and so therefore there's really no actual plan you know there's a right. plan on paper but the results are so far skewed from that plan that it's 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 only planning in name and so well yeah they have a, they have a command economy but not a response economy so yeah, he calls it administration it. he calls it specifically administration rather yeah, than there's um, a paper i read that was actually just a neoliberal paper that was saying that it wasn't a planned economy you know for the reasons that i explained earlier yeah. you know the the quote-unquote planning was mostly was, politically you know, motivated administered account uh administered economy and that has yeah. a very important uh analytical like effect because uh, the elite bureaucrats don't actually control the means of production don't actually control the economy because no one controls the economy like it is fundamentally out of control and yeah. they, ha it, they have like a series of paper decrees Right. They have they have like a legal like it's basically all through their the state that and their like, you know, position within the state. Like it's not a 
it's and they operate as individuals, atomized individual bureaucrats. Yeah, yeah. But, it's but, like it's, 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 um, it's like a weird kind of like monkey's paw situation where it's like, oh, okay, you say you want the cars to go faster. Well, what if they don't have any brakes in them? You know what I mean? You didn't say you had no. to have brakes. Yeah, that's know, exactly like, what he describes when he's describing why there's no law of value and how there's all these different indicators. And if anyone chooses a particular indicator as a target, it is exactly that wishing on a monkey's paw situation. Well, yeah, he says that the, also, the law of value has been abolished, but the thing is the law of planning hasn't replaced it. Instead, what's replaced it is nothing. And so what you you don't have any kind of general I'll, social law. You they're, don't they're, even have, and because of that, you don't have a mode of production. And so well, he goes as far to say that yeah. it's a non-mode of production. Like he specifically says that workers have to be involved in the planning to be like planning in the Marxist sense. And in that sense, it was not planning since there was obviously no workers involvement in the planning. The really provocative thing he says is that the law is waste. That is the yes. law. That rather is the law than, that governs the Soviet Union. He says, he says rather than a contradiction between exchange value and use value, he says the government's obsessed with producing use values, but it's a contradiction between like use values that are efficient goods that don't break and then use values that are faulty products. And so that's he, he says it's producing massive amounts, so much of it is just waste. What's really uh, unique about Tickton is that he's one of the few Marxists, and especially a Marxist that in many ways is very orthodox in methodology, that pretty much accepts von Mises and von Hayek's uh, critique of the uh, socialist calculation. Yeah, yeah. So what oh, was yeah, your because... critique of uh, socialist calculation? Just Because uh, I need to refresh. I don't remember what that whole debate is again. Uh, what is it? What is because I haven't read any of right, stuff Hayek's argument is that planning is impossible because the amount of um, consumer information is impossible for any one bureaucracy to collect because it's just too complex. And so the market is basically kind of like a computer that works behind everyone's backs that works all this information out without anyone having to plan anything. And so it's similar to the invisible hand argument. Are they the ones who talk about price signals? or Yeah, you need price signals to be able to rationally redistribute um, resources and have price signals. You have to have competition in markets, and so therefore socialism is impossible. That's why Paul Cockshot argues that what the USSR just needed was better computers. Yes, exactly. He's saying that what was needed was you know, computers that could effectively do all that calculation. So he's basically conceding to Hayek that, yes, the economic calculation problem is real. But then Cockshot argues that, well, really, you know, we've had a development in the forces of production, and that development is computers. And so now we can fix the problem. And Tickton has answered that is more nuanced, I think, which is saying that the problem is the relation of the, the producers to production and the fact that the workers are still basically alienated from production and are atomized individuals who are competing to scrape by. Well, you can't have real planning, you know, yeah. because there's no actual cooperation in society. They're competing for places them. in, like, queues and that sort of thing, right? Like, they're, like, basically, they're in line to get shit and that sort of thing, and that's what they're competing for. Like, yeah. since rubles don't really have any value and they're not a money, even the bourgeois conception of money. 
Right, queuing up, queuing up is sort of like how with Bitcoin, like you have to, like run your like these calculations are on your computer that are basically pointless because you can only run so many calculations. It limits the amount, or whatever. Like it's the same thing with like queues. Like the queues are basically a way of determining like allocation of resources because whoever has the most time to wait in line, uh, you know. There's also the role of you know, black markets in allocating those resources. He doesn't go into that as much here, but yeah, yeah. that was major. But I think that's actually a very important part of the whole thing because it's almost kind of these black markets that kind of patch up the the gray spots of the economy and allow it to kind of semi-function. But what it does is it creates this weird network of um, patronages and bureaucratic um, connections and stuff. So you you have a kind of con, like non control that wants to tend toward to market, but, but can't. Um, and just to double back on the theory stuff for a second, like I understood Paul Cockshot, who's like this weird like you know gendered reactionary but Stalinist who's into like value accounting planning, and I think fundamentally disagrees with Mises and Hayek and builds on Oscar Lange. Um, and p- kind of pushing back that you can do some kind of value accounting, whereas Tickton, oh yeah 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 where, whereas Tickton kind of dovetails a little bit more with like Michael Heinrich and value form theory, where there's no way of accounting for value except in exchange value or price, like and in a in yeah. a in a way they do agree that there is an economic calculation problem in that respect. Well, in that sense, I agree with Tickton because, yeah, like a Lange and company are trying to argue that, yes, we can basically create state capitalism where all the prices are accurately planned and stuff. And we can still have like a society of wage labor and money and whatnot, but still have it all be planned precisely. Whereas Tickton is saying, no, what you need is basically communism. You need to have direct access to the means of production and control over the labor process, not even trying to use prices as a kind of form of rationing. My question is, I guess, what does Tickton think of a transition would look like? You know, like, because... That's a good question. Because he must imagine it to be some kind of war communism. Well, if he is a Trotskyist, it would make sense that if he sees it as like a degenerated worker state to an extent that the problem is political then, that the working class had political power again... You know, that it would sort of the situation could be basically be turned around. I think yes. he actually did a lecture uh, on the transition period. Trotsky himself grew to become actually a market socialist in transition. Like in, in his later writings, you actually have Trotsky talking about the importance of like the gold standard under the dictatorship of the proletariat. Back to Kautsky. <laughs> um, and uh, the reason I bring that up is because. If Hayek and Mises and uh, Tickton and Heinrich are right about that, then that's a huge problem for a transition because you have to basically start with the law of value and establish the law of planning. <laughs> and what the fuck do you do in between it? Yeah, I mean, it, it basically, in my opinion, there has to be a period where the working class basically does manage capitalism. I think that's inevitable. And I think that creates that creates a lot of <laughs> that creates a lot of problems and damages. But I think that it, there is a period where basically you have you know remnants of a capitalism that the working class has to control while keeping in check at the same time. 
And I don't think that you can have this, you know, transitionary period where there's no, you know, the working class never gets its hands dirty and has to administer value or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's similar to Marx's concept in uh, Goethe Critique, Critique of the Goethe Program, um, where, I mean, you know, he kind of imagines that even in the lower stage of communism, there would be a, some kind of pressure that value still sort of exerts. And Engels has a sense that, you know, there will be some kind of accounting and that in the higher stage of communism, yeah. that those will just become like receipts that no one even gives a shit about. Yeah, I think it has to be a de- it's, it's kind of like a deconstruction of value. Yeah, it's like it's, it's a question it's, of whether it will be withering away or whether it will be abolished in the hard yeah, sense. Because communizers yeah. want to abolish value yeah. in the hard sense, and yeah, I think they want to immediately abolish value. And I mean, I think that Stalinism does immediately abolish value as well. Does Tickton carry that though through his Leninism, through his Trotskyism? Um, he argues that the law of value wasn't functioning in the USSR. Right, and I, I agree with that. Like, I think based on the evidence, you, you can't really see that. And just as an analytical point, I guess I'm taking it to a political level, and that makes it, I don't know, that brings a bunch of weird bedfellows into play. I think that's interesting, but the analytics, I guess, are more important. Very seductive about the idea that, you know, well, we just need to, we need to skip that whole transition, and we can get to the boss law of value immediately, and communism efforts always failed because the people were wimps, and they didn't do it. You know? Yeah. I mean, because if you... Yeah, if you, yeah. If, yeah. If you skip that idea of, you know, transition, you dis- you basically shuttle away like a whole set of problematics that sort of have to be reckoned with. But yeah. you know, that takes away to romanticism and the and the glorious you know poetry that we can write about how the revolution will be like drinking oceans of lemonade. That shit is dangerous though because it's yeah, that kind it's of zeal type shit. <laughs> that kind of zeal against the value form is exactly what you know, was behind the liquidation of the peasantry and collectivization. That was the only way that you could justify something like that. That was part of it, yeah. And I think, like, Gizdov says value will not be abolished in, like, quarters or halves or gradually, but immediately it will be abolished from the beginning. Whereas I actually think value will be gradually abolished and there will be, like, a strengthening of planning and workers' control over time to the point where value becomes basically obsolete. We really have to look at it in terms of lowering work hours rather than nationalizing everything and immediately abolishing value. I think we we, we do those things to the ends that they allow us to lower work hours, and as we lower work hours, more activity just becomes voluntary activity that isn't mediated through commodity exchange, which therefore is communist. And I think right, that's a better you, way to look about it. You need to maintain that dynamic where you, there are technological incentives to increase productivity, right? Because if you get rid of that, you can risk like a high level of stagnation that would, you know, even if you did have a like a functional dictatorship of the proletariat could hold back the development of the society and, you know, transitioning to communism. I think that's exactly right. What happens overall is that the nationalized sector cannot operate as if it is functioning on the basis of profit, profit and loss, and therefore the kind of efficiency that capitalism uh, requires. It necessarily can't do that. It can't exploit its its workers in the same way. 
At the same time, the fact is they are being exploited. And workers regard themselves as being exploited. And particularly when paid lower wages, which they generally are, they would then tend to be um, very discontented. Now that's true the world over. The consequence of that is that in any transitional period, if one simply has a nationalized sector of that kind, it is going to malfunction as compared to the private sector. It's, 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 not, it's, it's not untrue when the uh, conservatives or the Thatcherites say that the uh, nationalized sector is less efficient than the private sector. In, in the senses which I've just given, it is, of course. It doesn't mean that this, that this would that this would be the case in socialism, but it is the case that if you place an entity which not is is not in fact a capitalist form, not a form that capitalism would want, not a form built for capitalism, it will malfunction. It won't always malfunction. There will be ways one could find to try and offset that. But that would be the overall tendency. In general, people are compelled to work through money. And the incentive system, leaving out what I've just said, is one such as in the nationalized sector is a lot lower. People are necessarily more dis discontented are able to show their discontent to a, a greater degree, and so it will malfunction badly, which it does. I say it doesn't always do that, but that's generally the case. That's under capitalism, but the, the same thing would be true, but not to the same degree in a, in a transitional period, a classic tra tra transitional period. Consider that you've overthrown capitalism and you're now proceeding to build a social society. So <clears throat> you can't immediately nationalize everything. So a proportion of the society continues to be private and a proportion of it is uh, nationalized. How are you going to incentivize the people in the nationalized sector? It's not very clear. Once you start to uh, uh, make this point, it becomes more difficult to see what, what will propel the society forward. I, I think the answer there almost certainly has to be uh, education and the fact that when taking power, people wanted to do it and they could see the way forward to a society where work becomes mankind's prime one. In other words, why should somebody want to go down a coal mine? Okay, hopefully there won't be any coal mines. But just imagine it. Why would anybody want to go down a coal mine? Uh, obviously your intention is to abolish coal mines completely. Quite apart from the question of uh, pollution. You don't want people to have to do that horrible job. But to begin with, you have to have it. Uh, I think um, one idea that you could have to make incentive to produce new technologies is have everybody take part in the shit work of society. And if everyone has to take part in it, then there'll be a lot of complaints, and that will create incentive to you know, find ways to automate it or whatever, you know. That's just an idea. It might be completely crank.
Well, it's a, it's a classical idea. It's a classical, like, socialist idea. And I, the reason I brought this up is because what Tickton is saying is brilliant, but it's also a bit in tension with the sort of cumulative kind of vision that we've been kind of hammering out on our podcasts where we're de- basically rehabilitating this uh, concept of the transition. And there, at some point, would have to be some kind of compromise between the law of planning and the law of value. Well, Lenin's idea was basically using state capitalism to transition. Well, that raises the question of, like, to what extent does capitalism create the conditions for communism? Because if it, if, it, if it totally creates the conditions for communism, then, yeah, I mean, eventually you just have to, like, flip a switch somewhere before it was capitalism and then it was communism. But I don't think anybody thinks that's the case. So if there did have to be major structural changes to, to society, like – in, at a material base in order for there to be communism, well, to change things materially, you have to move shit around. And moving shit around takes a while. So, you're, you know, you're, you're going to have there's going to have to be a period where you're not in communism, but you're unless, not in capitalism anymore either. Un, unless yeah. your vision of revolution is like a, is a romantic insurrection. I think yeah, Tickton's well, argument here is not so much we just need to go straight to communism, but we need to be careful about how voluntaristically anti-market we are in the early phases. And that, in a way, Stalin's plan was that he tried almost too hard to destroy the market completely while not having a real alternative. And we basically needed to gradually have it wither away while scientific planning that's introduced at a rational level is, you know— is, that's what's what I got right. from it politically, at least. That's one right. of the things that I kind that's, of got. From is, is, that, is that is that in the later stages of um, the class structure of the USSR? I mean, this is just kind of what I politically speculate from my own reading. Oh, oh okay. This is just got my it. own take on yeah. what I kind of would politically take from the historical and, theoretical lessons in here. And Tickton makes the specifically political claim that he holds Stalin specifically accountable for all of this. Like he even goes on to like describe Trotsky, like saying, oh, if I was in Stalin's position, I would be basically Stalin. And he's like, no, you wouldn't because Stalin didn't really have a grasp on like capital and that sort of thing. And just like basic economics, like he, he, he has a deep deep hatred of stalin that's it's reasonable a lot of it is reasonable but a lot of it just seems kind of weirdly pathological it remains the case that there are people around the world including odd people very odd people who uh, have been right to me trying to uh, argue that stalin stalin himself was wonderful so i'd like to state quite clearly as Nick cox once put it <clears throat> compared to stalin Hitler was a bourgeois humanist, and Genghis Khan was a liberal. Well, it's very easy to show that. In terms of numbers killed, Stalin comes first. Can, 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 can you discuss it in a contribution? No, no, that's all right. Yes, I was going to go to do, do that. <laughs> One of the fundamental reasons, and actually the BBC did actually have a, a rather um, not very well done program, but the, uh, the uh, direction was correct. One of the fundamental reasons why 20 million people died was because Stalin insisted on particular policies which led to millions dying. He himself was responsible. He personally was responsible for millions dying. Hitler couldn't believe it that he was doing it. Stalin 
Stalin was responsible. If they had lost the war, he would have been responsible. He was responsible from beginning to end. He was responsible for the war that took place in the first place. He was responsible for the, for the fact that they couldn't defend themselves when Hitler walked in, since he'd killed the leaders, leaders who were fantastic um, um, <coughs> generals during the Civil War. Stalin killed them. He removed the whole top layer. They couldn't fight. <coughs> when he was warned by a series of people, including his own spies, by Zorge, who was in Japan, who sent him a personal message saying, Hitler's coming. He refused to accept it. Hitler was his friend. Stalin was responsible for a conservative percentage, I don't know how many, of the numbers who died during the war. Stalin was responsible. Anybody who depends on Stalin stands somewhere else in the world, not on the side of socialism. Anybody who defends Stalin effectively stands together with the bourgeoisie itself. Because if you look at what the real <coughs> policy, the real fundamental strategy which has worked, it has been Stalinism <coughs> which prevented any revolution from the time that Stalin actually was there. And so far as anything took place like Maoism, it was against Stalin. Not that one can, one can support Maoism. And Mao himself, when they said, who continue to support Stalin, let us remember, 45 million people died between 1958 and 1963. Uh, um, and that, and <coughs> Mao was responsible for that. It wasn't an idiocy, it was mass murder. 45 million people died, it seems, followed by the Cultural Revolution when, again, millions died. Stalinism is responsible for, in fact, hundreds of millions. So, it was wor in some ways, it may have been worse than the uh, <laughs> Second World War. It's a dangerous capitulation. Yeah, that's entering yeah, that's... territory. That's just him yeah, yeah, like, that's I, I found, like, I, I found, like, the the open opening rambling a bit much like about Stalin. Like I, I get like Stalin was responsible in terms of like the famines and that sort of thing. And the Soviet Union was pretty much apathetic to the Ukrainian famine. And it's agreed upon by most historians that the Soviet Union just did nothing in terms of like helping the Ukrainian famine and the famines that happened all across the Soviet Union at the yeah, time no defensive famine yeah no defensive famine however the claims that he made about Mao specifically were kind of weird like i know the great leap forward caused millions of deaths also but he tried to claim that the cultural revolution did too which is like no that's yeah not it's really weird um the black it, like, book of communism claimed 70 million died from Mao. And it's generally considered, at its highest estimates, that 30 million died in the Great Leap Forward due to famine. The Cultural Revolution was basically students going nuts. That I find it hard to believe that a bunch of students just murdered like millions of people. Is like well, there was a lot of honor suicides. Like people were publicly shamed in a culture like that. And I, I know, they, I know that happened, but it's not like levels of mass murder. It was more like un disorganized. Like there it was, wasn't. There were actual industrial conflicts with the state, though. I know about like the the crackdowns on like the weird communes that they had, but I don't think it killed forty million people. Yeah, yeah. Even the numbers that are estimated by the Communist Party, the current Chinese government, are overestimated due to their biases against Mao, and just found that weird rant sort of off-putting. Yeah, it entered Cold War territory a little too much, and it does remind us of you know 
that weird tendency in Trotskyism to go right wing with people like Max Shackman and James Burnham. But Tickton, you know, he's an old guy at this point, and he's held the, the Trotskyist line of permanent revolution to this day. You know, I can I just say one other thing about Tickton really quick? Like, also, just as one for on side notes here, dude, also generally very well dressed. Like, he's, he, usually right. has some, he usually has some really nice suits on. Yeah, game recognized game. Yeah, I, I was going to say, yeah. is like, you can say there's like some crank aspects of Tickton. And I guess that's, you know, he actually does think that Trotsky would have, like, made the Soviet Union work. I don't know how he thinks that. And um, Yeah, that seems patently incompatible with his and, uh, But the thing yeah. is, so he, but these are just problems that you get with Trots in general. Tickton is, is weird because he somehow takes Trotskyism. Because kind of, you can tell that his starting point is to generate worker state thesis. But in a way, like... Because that's the starting point, rather than state capitalism, he does something a little more interesting than any of the other theorists do. He goes out of his way to reject it eventually. He makes up his own path. I think Max Schachman and his bureaucratic collectivism theory is the same way. It's because he's kind of, you know, going off the beaten path and making his own theory rather than just making it conform to the ideals of capitalism, he's forced to kind of innovate and actually look at what is the social structure. Yeah, maybe Tickton's a bit of a crank, but Lauren Goldner used to be a LaRoucheite and still tells people to read dialectical economics. Well, and, th- that's my yeah. point about pluralism, is that even, even yeah. if he comes from a crank background, he could still produce well, something I mean, really, of value. Isn't, isn't yeah. Marxism really just a, a tradition of cranks? Fucking I mean, yes. The guy, the guy who found it had no qualifications to be an economist. He was a failed law student uh, and sometime part-time journalist who had a friend who was rich. And then he just went to the library and just complained about the economist for 3,000 pages. And now we have a theory that we uh, structure our entire political activity around. So well, the problem is, though, it's just the quality control goes into the hands of— There's take... no quality control. It's part of the inherent nature of the thing. Like, there are no institutions— uh, that have any kind of like intellectual hegemony um, that are uh, maybe aside from universities right now in terms of like Marxism, because the, the, there was a period we had like the second and third international where that was the case, but those failed. And so now it's just, you know, whatever you find on the Internet, you know, and that's, <laughs> yeah. that, that just goes with the territory because there aren't any institutions like the, the working class doesn't have major institutions that could subsidize this kind of like uh, intellectual research and fucking. Uh, the capitalists certainly aren't going to pay for it. So, I mean, what do you expect? Basically becomes just like small, petty bourgeois cliques within academia and without. Yeah, yeah. by the uh, way, uh, we are starting a Patreon. If anyone wants to like contribute to that, we... Uh... <laughs> Speaking of uh, petty bourgeois cliques. Yeah. Um, well, that's what makes critique such a, uh, I don't know, so, so important. It's one of those petty bourgeois cliques, but it happens to just be one that has a you know decent analysis of things and oh yeah I, he publishes amazing stuff you know i, I also just been wanna, doing it since like literally 1973 like it's yeah been, uh... i, I want to double back on bureaucratic collectivism um i think the first popular exponent that is bruno rizzi who's like an italian yeah but he was a crazy anti-semite like uh, yeah no 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 he's nuts <laughs> but i mean shackman was for vietnam or for the vietnam war i should say um, yeah i mean oh yeah shackman became a total piece of shit i'm talking so, about like shackman whatever. when he was still like a marxist and still leninist for sure you know? but I, just talk like, i don't know i'm just wanted to name drop rizzy because you know 
Anyway, he's, can I he's ask that's where Shackman like a, gets it from. Can I just ask a weird question that's kind of off topic? Yes. Were there like left wing Shatmanites that ended that like broke away from Shatman's Mar- original org when Marxist yes. humanist or- Marxist humanist basically? Yeah. Um. James oh. and Dunyevskaya and oh, who else split from? There? A lot of people are actually splits from the Shackmanites. A lot of yeah. Draper, for example, I think Hal Draper was a, ex, a lot of the international socialist people were ex-Shackmanites. Yeah, because I knew that, uh, like, James and, um, I can't say her last name. Dunyevskaya. Dunyevskaya. Yeah, I, I, names just stumble me up, I guess. Whatever. It's all good. Yeah, but anyways, yeah, I, I I knew that that she worked that both of them worked with Chapman for a while, but I didn't know that they were like in the tendency. Or Off topic, uh, but Max Shackman has a really good essay on race. It's kind of like a long essay slash small short book, but um, Leon Trotsky was going to write a book on the racial question in the U.S. But then Shackman wrote his book, and he was like, "Eh, Shackman, he did the job, so I'm just gonna." You know, oh, wow. have a few I'd be cur- I mean, I, I, I'd be curious to see what Trotsky would. I mean, it seemed, I, I guess he did live here for a while, didn't he? He was in New York. Yeah. So, yeah. He had like a weird line of on Catalonia, though. Um, <laughs> like he, he supported their national liberation for some reason. Well, he, he, would be, he would be the only leftist to do so. Yeah. That's, yeah. The sports are all about Catalan liberation. Yeah, I think that's where the sparks get it from, actually. But I don't know. Oh yeah, uh, for sure. Did uh, did we cover how Tickton is different than the bureaucratic collectivism theorist? Because I think that's an important point. Because it, it's one thing to say that shit is not capitalism. It's another thing to say. I mean, obviously the workers aren't in control of this in any meaningful way. Um, but then it's you know then there's the obvious idea that oh maybe the bureaucracy itself is the new class and. He definitely torpedoes that in a piece that I read. Um, he like he yeah. does, he definitely refuses to like acknowledge it as a class. Like he talks about um, he because he says like the, there isn't really the bureaucracy because the bureaucracy is composed of like different levels. Um, there's like the elites, and then there's kind of like the intelligentsia who may or may not be a part of the elite. And the amount of people who could get into the elite, the cycle in and out of it, used to be much larger. But I guess from the time he was there, that was was starting to constrict, and the elite was becoming more ossified. Yeah, and as the elite becomes more ossified, with historical perspective, we can say, then the mode of production collapsed into capitalism. Like, right. Like, yeah. Once, uh, once the once the once the play was over, all that was left was to steal the scenery, as uh, they once said in the uh, Bertolucci film, The Last Emperor. <laughs> Uh, to touch on briefly the the what he calls it non mode of production that name usually just throws people off in general like in terms of they they ask what does it mean necessarily and I think giving a well yeah it's interesting like he he almost seems to say like in order for there there to be a systemic account there has to be a system that works. <laughs> You know, and like he just right. he sees it as being so like convoluted and dysfunctional that like any analysis will probably mirror that in some way, you know, and be uh, kind of all over the place. 
Uh, the end of uh, the class structure, the USSR essay, has a really great quote about this. Um, None of these views offer a theory of development of these kind of societies. They amount to a little more than simple statements of a political kind, and for that reason, they cannot find room for the more complex view that Stalinist-type societies are blind alleys in the world process of the transition towards socialism. Other transitions between modes of production must also have known false starts, developments which have had to be superseded in order that society could complete its transition. We have been discussing an instance where the false start has actually retarded world history for decades. It is possible that the proletarian revolution requiring for its completion a higher level of consciousness than any previous revolution is more susceptible to setback than such previous transitions. Soviet society stands in the limbo of a transitional epoch with its own unviable class structure with a method of production which is not a mode of production and which therefore must break asunder and develop either to capitalism or to socialism. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah that, he, that's as clear as he gets about it. And I, I've yeah. seen this. That I've, they, don't, they don't create coherent classes that have a definable relationship to the means of production, nor a definable caste necessarily in that society. Yeah, two people that have extrapolated on this are Chris Arthur, uh, who wrote The Clock Without a Spring, and, of course, our old friend Mike McNair, uh, who has a great essay about blind alleys and provides yes, examples for... With this. Yes, that provides examples for blind alleys for uh, slave society and feudalism as, as well, and capitalism. It's very good. That's it for this week. If you want to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechance at gmail.com. If you would like to support the show, you can like us on Facebook or leave us a good review on iTunes. Or just generally recommend us to your friends. Play our podcast really loud in your car as you stop at stoplights. Sneak into a local Target and grab one of those intercom phones Hold it up to your phone and play ours as loud as you can before security comes to kick you out. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.